Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. This first story is about how real evil emerged out of the epicenter of love. 1967, the summer of love—that's what they called it—and this flower power movement started at a particular intersection of streets in San Francisco, Hate Street. That's Hate, spelled H-A-I-G-H-T, and Ashbury. It was a neighborhood taken over by youth, disaffected, disgusted, disenchanted youth who wanted to feel joy, who wanted to believe joy still existed at a time when their friends, their brothers and cousins and dads were being killed in a pointless war half a world away. They imagined a better world, a freer world, and they set about building their utopia right at that corner. They set up free clinics, free stores. Paper money was just a capitalist trick, another way to keep the man down. They created co-ops and communes where people traded and worked for each other, for the planet, not for any corporation. Everything should be free. Everything should be shared, drugs and sex especially. I missed out on free love, goddammit, but I understand a little bit about this life. I still remember the commune my parents lived in for a time. I remember the clothes, the stink of ditch weed. The look of pure joy on their faces, and that word, hippie. Back to San Francisco, Hate Ashbury, where it all started, 1967. It was a moment and a place, and for that summer, it felt like just maybe this revolution would catch on, that love would overpower hate, and everyone would just fucking chill. In the middle of all that, like the snake in the Garden of Eden, came a man with a silver tongue. He was a handsome man with raggedy hair and a cleft chin. He wandered into town with a guitar on his back, and he preached and he sang in the streets. And the women loved him, and the men loved him too. Quickly, he assembled a small, intimate congregation, a family. Satan and Jesus were getting together, he told them, and when they did, they would judge humanity, and only after would there be true peace. And if anyone should ask, they were to call him Charles. 
whose will is also the son of man's, or Charles Manson for short. Charles Manson seems to have borrowed much of his religious teachings from the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which had been established in 1963 by a couple disgruntled Scientologists who believed that Satan was the fourth missing part of the Holy Trinity and resided in our subconscious. It was all pretty far out. Manson told his family that they were the reincarnated souls of the very first Christians, and their mission was to bring about a final judgment in a great race war-fueled apocalypse he called Helter Skelter. The Beatles, Manson explained, had predicted this coming war. He believed the group had left subtle clues in the White Album that were meant to communicate directly to Manson and his followers. Inspired, Manson said that they should create an album of their own that would be so groovy it would trigger the end of the world. All they needed was a record producer, and as luck would have it, they knew one. His name was Terry Melcher, the only child of actress Doris Day. Melcher produced Mr. Tambourine Man for the Birds. It was actually Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys who introduced Melcher to Charles Manson. You see, Wilson had picked up two hitchhikers one day who happened to be members of the Manson family. Through their powers of, um, persuasion, they convinced Wilson to let ten other women and Manson himself move into his house. While he was there, Wilson and Manson recorded several songs, and Wilson wanted to show off his guest's talent to industry men, one of which was this Terry Melcher. So when the Manson family set out to record their world-ending album, they called Terry Melcher. They invited him to their house to hear the music for himself. But Melcher stood them up. Manson was displeased, so he went to Melcher's house looking to settle a score. Except the address Manson had for Melcher, 10050 Celio Drive, was being rented out to someone else a director named Roman Polanski. Did the master plan take root in Manson's mind that day? Maybe, maybe, but it didn't happen then. This Melcher thing, Manson's obsession with making the album to end all albums, it went on through the summer of 1969. It was many months later, on the night of August 8th, when Manson went to his family and told Charles Watson, Susan Adkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to go to Melcher's old house and kill everybody there. The four of them murdered five people that night. Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojcik Frakowski, Stephen Parent, and the actress Sharon Tate, as well as the unborn baby in her belly. Polanski was away shooting a film. Before this act of senseless violence, Charles Watson had been an honor student, editor of the school newspaper. Susan Atkins was a quiet girl who sang in a church choir. Linda Kasabian was described by those who knew her as a starry-eyed romantic. Patricia Krenwinkel had studied to be a nun. Four average decent people met a man named Charles Manson, and this man used nothing but words to convince them that they needed to kill innocent people so that the end of the world could begin. So let me ask you, what makes you think you could resist Manson's charm? 
There are evil people who have some power to manipulate others to do their bidding. How do they do it? How are we taken in? If we learn their secret, would it ever be ethical to psychologically manipulate another human being? You don't think so? Well, what if I told you that you allow yourself to be manipulated every day? This is the philosophy of crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should have read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by now. If you haven't, put it on your list. Amazon sells old copies for a penny, and you could read it in a day. There's a scene in that book that happens near the beginning that is so iconic you've probably heard of it, even if you didn't read it. One summer day, young Tom Sawyer is told to paint a long, tall fence. He grumbles about it, thinking about all the fun he's missing. Along comes Ben Rogers on his way to the swimming hole. Ben stops to talk to Tom and says he feels bad that the boy has to work on such a fine day. Clever Tom is all like, Work? What do you mean work? I'm having fun. He makes it seem like painting a fence is the most fun any boy could have. So Ben begs Tom to let him take over. In fact, he pays Tom to let him have a chance at it. 
Other boys show up to see how fun painting a fence can be, and they pay Tom to finish the job after Ben is done. Nobody has money, of course, so they pay with tin soldiers and kites and firecrackers. Soon, Tom is off to play, his pockets full of toys having fooled his friends. Later, this little psychopath sits with his toes in the river and thinks about what he did with pleasure. He had discovered a great law of human action without knowing it, writes Mark Twain. Namely, that in order to make a man or a boy covet a thing, it is only necessary to make the thing difficult to attain. If he had been a great and wise philosopher, like the writer of this book, he would now have comprehended that work consists of whatever a body is obliged to do, and that play consists of whatever a body is not obliged to do. There's a big difference between Tom Sawyer and Charles Manson, but the intent and the act is the same, right? They both desired something, and they manipulated other people to get it. So where exactly is the line between criminal behavior and boyish prank? Manson never killed anyone, by the way, but he served time for murder. He died in prison, and we were all okay with that because we felt he deserved it. But what was he really guilty of? He was Tom Sawyer all grown up, still tricking people into painting a fence. It's just that the stakes were higher. I want to tell you a story about the most depraved crime I've ever heard of. To this day, it remains unsolved, sort of. It's a story about how a psychopath destroyed the lives of two people with nothing more than a calling card and clever words. The phone call started in 1992, and over the years, the psychopath perfected his dangerous game. He called restaurants and grocery stores, posing as a police officer. He needed the manager to help him catch a criminal. In November 2000, he convinced a female manager at a McDonald's in Litchfield, Kentucky, that one of her customers was a suspected sex offender and that she needed to act as bait and undress in front of him so that undercover cops could then make an arrest. In 2003, he convinced an assistant manager of an Applebee's to give a waitress a 90-minute strip search. That same year, he manipulated a male employee of a McDonald's in Hinesville, Georgia, to conduct a body cavity search of a female co-worker to find drugs. More calls and more sexual assault by proxy followed. A Winn-Dixie in Panama City, a Taco Bell in Arizona. Then, then something truly evil happened in the office of a McDonald's in Mount Washington, Kentucky. When the assistant manager answered the phone, the caller identified himself as Officer Scott. He said one of her employees was suspected of theft, and he described an 18-year-old girl who was working that night. Officer Scott said he couldn't send an officer at that time, so someone should bring the girl into the office and have her remove her clothes. They were instructed to put the girl's clothes in a bag and then place that bag in the girl's car. She was given a small apron to wear. Another assistant manager, also female, was called in to be a witness, but that manager left after an hour, and the original manager said she had to return to the floor to help with orders. Officer Scott told her that she must bring in someone to watch the girl, so the manager asked her fiancé, Walter, to drive into the store and watch the girl while she worked. Walter was a local exterminator with a low IQ, 
but no history of violence. Once he was alone with the girl, Officer Smith instructed him to remove the girl's apron and have her perform jumping jacks. He then told Walter to search her vagina. When that was done, the caller ordered the girl to sit on Walter's lap and kiss him. When she refused, Officer Smith told Walter to spank her to show her who was in charge. For two and a half hours, Walter was in the office with the girl and eventually the games escalated to outright sexual assault. After Walter finally left, the manager realized the call was a hoax. When he was caught, Officer Smith hung up. Someone was smart enough to think to use Star 69, which gave them a number that the police later traced to a calling card. That calling card was used at a payphone in Panama City, Florida, and had been purchased at a local Walmart. Detectives were able to use that information to track the card to a man named David R. Stewart, a married man with five kids. Stewart claimed he'd never purchased any calling cards, but detectives found one in his home that was connected to nine prank calls to restaurants from earlier that year. They also found applications for jobs at police departments as well as guns. In spite of all this, David R. Stewart never went to prison. He was charged with impersonating an officer and solicitation of sodomy, but he was acquitted because there were no direct witnesses and no one had recorded the caller's voice to compare it to his. Walter, for his role, was sentenced to five years in prison. The calls ended after David Stewart was identified in the press. The girl sued McDonald's for $200 million, stating that McDonald's corporate was aware of similar calls and took no action to prevent her attack. McDonald's lawyers said she should have known the caller was not really a cop and should have removed herself from the situation. A jury awarded her $5 million, plus an additional $1.1 million, for compensatory damages and expenses. Then, McDonald's fucking appealed, and they ended up settling with the girl for a little over $1 million. Last year, McDonald's earned $22.8 billion. That's $62 million a day. For all the girl's pain and suffering, McDonald's had to forfeit what it makes off cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets in just half an hour. This is scary shit, right? It messes with our concepts of free will and blame and culpability. There's something fundamentally wrong about manipulating another human being for shits and giggles. It's frightening that someone would plot against another human being like that. But what's more frightening to me is when this manipulation happens without deception. When you're convinced to do something by someone who also believes the lies they're telling. Because, shit, who do you blame then? The French have a term for this. It's called folie à deux. A delusion shared by two. Usually this occurs in a very close relationship. When the more dominant person suffers a delusion and convinces the submissive person that it's real. The first documented case of folie à deux wasn't all that bad. A married couple in the 1800s reported a strange series of crimes to local authorities. They believed someone was breaking into their house and spreading dust all over and intentionally wearing down the soles of their shoes. No one was breaking into their home, of course, but one of them had come up with this crazy idea and then the other believed them. They were terrified to live in their own house because they believed this lie so thoroughly. 
Probably the most famous case of folly adieu in recent memory is the story of two 12-year-old girls who stabbed their classmate, Peyton Leitner, because they believed it would appease a fictional demon known as Slenderman. I'll only use their first names, Morgan and Anissa. By all accounts, Morgan was the dominant personality, which was unfortunate because she also suffered from schizophrenia. She was able to convince Anissa that her delusions about Slenderman were real, and together they stabbed Peyton in the woods. Both girls were found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, and sent to a mental institution where they will likely remain for decades. Folly Adu is suspected in some of the most notorious true crime cases of the last century, Bonnie and Clyde, Columbine, the John Mohammed Lee Boyd Malvo sniper attacks. There are even cases where the delusion is not limited to a pair of people, but a small group. There was an incident in Melbourne, Australia in 2016, where five members of a tight-knit family went crazy one night, believing someone was going to kill them. They got into their car and fled north, driving a thousand miles before police stopped them and got them psychiatric care. Psychological manipulation, whether it's by a cult leader, a creepy man on the phone, or a loved one, has another name. Brainwashing. There are three ways to brainwash a human mind. You can do it through compliance, by using threats and power like the guy who called into McDonald's. In fact, the movie based on that incident is called Compliance. You can do it through persuasion, convincing the person it will feel good, that it will make them happy if they do what you want them to do. And you can do it through education. This is by far the most successful method, as it convinces them that their actions are logical. A psychiatrist named Robert J. Lifton has studied brainwashing for years after becoming interested in the topic during the Korean War when he served as a shrink for the Air Force. He interviewed prisoners of war and people who had been held prisoner in China's re-education camps. Some of these captured prisoners were brainwashed into admitting the use of germ warfare by the United States, something that had not really happened. Through these interviews, Lifton identified the process the Chinese and North Koreans used to rewrite a person's mind. It begins with an assault on identity. Their scientists had discovered a person's mind is easier to influence if you first destroy their sense of self. Charles Manson recognized this too. He gave his followers new names and asked them to leave their old ones behind. Next is the guilt trip. Make the victim feel like they've done something wrong and that they deserve the punishment they are receiving, something the man who called McDonald's excelled at. There's self-betrayal, where the person is told to denounce their family and separate themselves from their own past. Then, the victim reaches a breaking point, a nervous breakdown, kind of like wiping a computer hard drive so you can add a new operating system. At this point, the brainwasher offers a kindness and some leniency to engender trust and to build a strong relationship. They are then allowed to purge their guilt through confession, they are showed how to channel their guilt in ways that benefit the leader, whoever that may be. Next comes re-education, where they are told what to believe, followed by a nice quiet period of harmony. It all ends with some kind of final confession and rebirth as a new personality, which is usually done in a cult setting as some kind of rite of passage. 
When those two tween girls killed their friend to appease Slenderman, they believed they were becoming reborn into his kingdom. You know, it's interesting this list of brainwashing techniques was derived by Lifton during the war. Certainly, he would have recognized its parallel in the way a drill sergeant breaks down a new recruit during boot camp. So we understand how it's done. We know it happens, but here's the scary thing. We don't really yet understand why it works so well. It's a complicated issue, wrapped up in our need as humans to belong to someone, to belong to a family, to belong to a group. Brainwashing recognizes and manipulates the one thing each of us have in common, the desire for affirmation, the recognition that we exist and that there's a place for us in this world. And since we don't really understand the why of it, it makes it very difficult to figure out ways to protect ourselves. There is this Dutch psychiatrist with a name like a Star Wars character, Juiced Merlu. He saw brainwashing as a serious danger every person faces in their life. He coined the term menticide, meaning the killing of the mind, to better illustrate this fear. In his book, The Rape of the Mind, he writes, the modern techniques of brainwashing and menticide, those perversions of psychology, can bring almost any man into submission and surrender. Juiced was not the name he was born with, by the way. It was Abraham. But he changed it when the Nazis came to power and Hitler brainwashed a nation to believe all Jews were evil. Here's a question for you. We've talked about the dangers of brainwashing, but is it ever ethical to manipulate someone else's mind? The philosophical argument for subverting another person's will is known as paternalism. It's the idea that sometimes we know better than the other person, so we're justified to re-educate them, to teach them the right way. Paternalism, easy to remember, right? Because isn't this what we do as parents? If my five-year-old believes they can jump off the roof and fly, if they wear a red cape, it's okay to subvert his will because I know that he's about to break his goddamn arm. But be careful, it's a slippery slope. Like parents saving ignorant children, some people with power believe they know better than you and wish to make sure you know it. The great British philosopher, John Stuart Mill, saw a parent's corrections as the only moral form of paternalism and believed a ruler or a government should never ever be in the business of manipulating its citizens. In his book, On Liberty, Mill writes, the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. He cannot rightfully be compelled to do or forbear because it will be better for him to do so, because it will make him happier, because, in the opinion of others, to do so would be wise or even right. Um, not so fast, said Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Thaler is a rock star economist. He won the Nobel Prize for it in 2017. Sunstein is the Bert to his Ernie, more a legal rock star, the most cited legal scholar in America, to be exact. A Harvard professor and, I have to note this, he worked for the Lampoon when he was a student there, so he gets some coolness points for that. Thaler and Sunstein wrote this book 10 years ago called nudge, in which they defend paternalism. 
Their new brand of brainwashing is known as libertarian paternalism, and the whole idea is in that book title, Nudge. Maybe we shouldn't subvert the will of the people, they suggest, but perhaps we could nudge it a little? Humans, after all, are terrible decision makers who rely on superstition to make some big decisions about life, and sometimes that wreaks havoc on the economy, which just hurts everybody. Thaler and Sunstein are no doubt smarter about money than some rando woman living in a trailer outside Topeka, right? So maybe, maybe they should help her spend her money more wisely. You can nudge a person, they say, by redesigning the choice architecture of the decisions they face on a daily basis. An example, Germany has an opt-in system for organ donation. If you are a German citizen and you wish to donate your organs, you have to check a box and sign a form. Only 12% of German citizens are organ donors. Next door, Austria tried an opt-out system. So if you're an Austrian citizen, you have to check a box and sign a form to not donate your organs. Care to guess what percentage of Austrian citizens are organ donors? Don't guess. I'm, I'm going to tell you. It's 99.98%. The choice is still there. Anyone who does not wish to donate their organs does not have to. But people were nudged to make the better decision. Nudges and choice architecture are now all the rage. In public schools, you can nudge kids to eat better by placing vegetables and health food items at eye level and keeping the sweets on higher shelves. The most prominent nudge we face daily is at point of sales. Restaurants and coffee shops and cabs. When asked how much we wish to tip, we're given recommended selections with 20% front and center. Before choice architecture, New York cabbies earned 10 to 12% on tips on average. Today, it's between 15 and 30%. Elizabeth Colbert, in an article for The New Yorker, raised an alarm at the implications of the nudge. If the nudgee can't be dependent on to recognize his own best interest, why stop at a nudge, she writes? Why not offer a push or perhaps even a shove? And if people can't be trusted to make the right choices for themselves, how can they possibly be trusted to make the right decisions for the rest of us? So, the ethics of manipulating a person's choice for good are tricky, to say the least. We click 20% on the tablet to tip our waiter at Applebee's, but when we really think about it, it makes us a little uncomfortable, right? Because it seems maybe the waiter feels a little entitled to that 20%. And it's just a little harder for us to tip what they really deserved after waiting 20 minutes for a refill of Diet Dr. Pepper. It is a form of subverting our will, a subtle trick used by cult leaders and madmen. But when it comes to psychological manipulation, the most successful brainwasher in recent history is not Applebee's. It's not Thaler or Sustein. It's not Jim Jones or Charles Manson. It's a man who was born in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1941. He attended Yale University but dropped out. He married his high school sweetheart, and when he became eligible for the draft, he got deferments. At the time, married men were not drafted into Vietnam through the selective service system. That changed on October 6, 1965, when the draft expanded to include married men who had no kids. Exactly nine months and two days later, this man's first child was born, keeping him out of the war again. He went on to serve as deputy assistant to President Richard Nixon 
and was chief of staff for Gerald Ford. In 2003, he used clever lies to manipulate millions of people so that he could get the support needed to destroy an entire foreign state. I give you the 46th Vice President of the United States, Dick Cheney. To understand what exactly Cheney did and how he got away with it, we have to quickly discuss the history of the sanctioned brainwashing of free citizens by the ruling class. It begins in 1622. Religion was a big deal back then. In fact, religion and government were pretty much inseparable, if you can imagine such a thing. For many centuries, the Catholic Church ruled Europe, but there was this thing called the Reformation that happened in the 16th century that created a lot of Protestants. Needless to say, the Protestants and Catholics didn't like each other much. They were looking at the map of the world and counting up its territories like a big game of risk, and both were trying to fill in the remaining empty spaces. Pope Gregory XV was so concerned about the rise of Protestantism that he formed a new department within his church to fight it. It was called the Sacra Congregatio di Propaganda Fide, otherwise known as the Sacred Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. The manager of this department was called the Cardinal Prefect of Propaganda. What he did was send missionaries to convert entire countries in Asia, Africa, and the New World. The goal was to re-educate as many savages to the Catholic way of thinking as they could, whatever the cost. The methods used by the church to influence the minds of the people became known as propaganda, and the wise men of the world took note. Flash forward to the end of World War I, the Great War, 1914. Germany is in shambles, its cities destroyed, its citizens mentally defeated. In the middle of all this destruction and depression, one guy recognized an opportunity. He saw the way propaganda had been used to weaken Germany's morale and how well it had worked. So what he did was write a book proposing that perhaps Germany should learn from this and use propaganda to build itself back up. The important thing to remember, he said, was when lying, it's best to keep it simple. It is a mistake to make propaganda many-sided, like scientific instruction, for instance, the young man wrote. The receptivity of the great masses is very limited. Their intelligence is small, but their power of forgetting is enormous. In consequence of these facts, all effective propaganda must be limited to very few points and must harp on these in slogans until the last member of the public understands what you want him to understand by your slogan. As soon as you sacrifice this slogan and try to be many-sided, the effect will piddle away. For the crowd can neither digest nor retain the material offered. In this way, the result is weakened and in the end, entirely canceled out. The book was an instant success, but you'd be hard pressed to find an edition of Mein Kampf for sale in Germany these days. Its author, Adolf Hitler, was right about the power of propaganda, but wrong about a great many other things. The United States took a page from Hitler and militarized propaganda during World War II. Bright, shiny, movie-style posters created by the Office of War Information Bureau of Graphics captured American soldiers in heroic stance against a bright blue sky. Uncle Sam wants you. Meanwhile, our enemies, especially the Japanese, were depicted as grotesque monsters. The enemy, they were telling us, is not even entirely human. It's okay to hate them. It's okay to kill them. 
After World War II, Congress had the presence of mind to try to put the genie back into the bottle. In 1948, they passed the Smith-Munt Act, which prohibited the United States government from creating and distributing propaganda to its citizens. They could still do so abroad, just not at home. That worked well until 9-11. It blows my mind to think that some of you were born after that day or have no memory of the world from before. It was just a different place. It was a little more boring, actually. We had the sense that America was far enough away from the rest of the world that terrorism, real terrorism, could never reach us. You could feel the world change that day. George W. Bush was president when it happened, and if he wasn't, a great many things would have happened differently, and it's hard to say if we'd be better off or not. Who knows? But you have to understand that Bush's father, George Bush Sr., had gone to war against Saddam Hussein in Iraq in 1990 and lost. All the world is a stage, and Bush was playing Hamlet. They wanted the enemy to be Saddam in Iraq so they could finally take him down, for oil, for revenge, for countless other paternalist reasons. So when Osama bin Laden claimed responsibility, the CIA was given one job, find a reason to blame Iraq, too. The propaganda campaign began in October 2002 when Bush claimed Hussein had a massive stockpile of biological weapons. This directly conflicted with what CIA director George Tenet knew, that there was no information at all on the types or quantities of weapons, agents, or stockpiles at Baghdad's disposal. In December, the Bush administration floated the idea that Saddam had a nuclear weapon. Tenet later testified that he had warned them that Saddam did not have a nuclear weapon and would have been unable to make one until 2007 to 2009. Then Cheney, displeased with the CIA reports coming in, and just started making shit up. He said 9-11 mastermind Mohammed Atta had met in Prague with an Iraqi intelligence officer, even after the CIA concluded the meeting never took place. Finally, in August 2002, Cheney took a page from Mein Kampf and put the propaganda into terms everyone could understand. Simply stated, there's no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. That was the point of no return. In 2003, we invaded Iraq. We're still there. To date, the number of people who have died as a result of that war is 288,000. Charles Manson lied to his followers, and four of them killed Sharon Tate and her friends. For his role, Manson spent the rest of his life in prison. Dick Cheney lied to the world, and a quarter of a million people died as a result. So you tell me, who was the monster? The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com, where you can find links to the other stuff I do, including virtual reality journalism. I also currently host Lake Erie's Coldest Cases for Discovery ID, and you can find every episode on idgo.com. My latest novel, Muse, will be published in May. You can order Muse and my other books online or anywhere books are sold. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Check out his other creation, Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, 
available to order on Amazon or also woodif.com. Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.